Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators of the Academy's live and live stream programmes and the producer of this series. This week's guest, Julia Cameron, is a playwright, novelist and songwriter, but she's best known for The Artist's Way, a manual for anyone seeking to make creative work. The Artist's Way has been celebrated by some of the world's most influential creative people, from Reese Witherspoon to Alicia Keys, Pete Townsend to Russell Brand. And one of its biggest fans is novelist Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote her seminal bestseller Eat, Pray, Love under its influence. Earlier this year, we brought Julia and Elizabeth together for the very first time via the magic of live streaming to explore the path to higher creativity. They were in conversation with Hannah McInnes. Hello, hello everyone. Good evening. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to see so many of you tuning in. I can see the numbers whizzing up on the bottom of my screen. And Julia Cameron and Elizabeth Gilbert, we feel very blessed to have you both here. Thank you so much for joining us. So I'm going to start off. I'm sure many of you will have read it uh, and I'm sure many of you might know its history. But Julia, I'd like to roll two questions into one to you at the beginning to say, how did the artist's way first come to be? And did you expect this extraordinary popularity? I've heard you say that you feel dazed, overwhelmed and confused by the velocity of people and events. So did you expect it would speak to millions in this way? No. I thought I was writing a book for 10 friends. I had friends who were blocked and I knew how to unblock. Uh, And I thought, well... I'll just write some little essays and mail them to them. So it was initially intended as a a very intimate little book. uh, And when it was first published, they published an intimate little number of books because they thought, well, it's just a little California book. And it's not going to catch on worldwide, certainly. So we'll just publish a few. So they published a few, and then there was a demand for more. And uh, it wasn't until we had sold 100,000 books that they said, oh, maybe we should take this book a little bit seriously. And, and for, to Liz then, I mean, how did you first where come across it? And I mean, I know you say it's sort of changed your life. I remember seeing it for years. It's the kind of book that's on the bookshelves of every person who I would be interested in, right? Like it's, it's one of those books, but I didn't think that I ever needed it because I, my creativity was the one part of my life that I felt like did flow in a natural way. And it was other parts of my life that were a disaster, <laughs> namely intimacy and relationships. But my intimacy and relationship disaster got so big that it swallowed my creativity. And I indeed became blocked and stuck, um, not just in my creative life, but just in my life in general. And this was around the time that I turned 30 and I was going through a divorce and a depression. And a friend gave me The Artist's Way and I, I did it loyally. I did it to the letter because I'm such a good rule follower. That's one thing that I love about the book is like, tell me what, you know, when you're desperate, you just want somebody to tell you what to do. So 
tell me what to do, Julia, and I'll do it. And I did every single thing that she suggested and all the exercises and the morning pages and the artist dates. And, and at the end of the book, there's a point, Julia, where you, you suggest that we go back and we look over and we see what keeps showing up page after page after page and underline the things that keep showing up. And what kept showing up on mine was, I wish I could speak Italian. I didn't know this about myself. I didn't know this piece of information about myself. I'd kept that hidden from myself, but it was on almost every page. And I was so surprised by that. And I thought, apparently, I really want to speak Italian. How am I going to do that? And I started taking lessons. That started to pull me out of my depression. And the next thing you know, I was on a plane to Rome, and that began Eat, Pray, Love. So I can truly say that without your book, Julia, Eat, Pray, Love would have never existed. I never would have known what I needed or wanted. Yes, I, I think the book gives us many little hints about what it is we truly love and we're truly interested in. Julia, perhaps you could explain to people who don't know just very quickly those morning pages and artist dates, what they are. They obviously helped Liz so much and people perhaps don't know exactly what they are and, and what their purpose is. Okay, so we'll start with morning pages. Morning pages are three pages of longhand morning writing about absolutely anything that crosses your mind. It's like you take a little whisk broom and you poke it into the corners of your life and you bring all the debris and rubble into the center of the room where you can do something about it. Uh, And pages are top of the head. They're not art. They're not supposed to be, quote, real writing. Although I think sometimes, and Liz could back me up on this, sometimes real writers have a regrettable tendency to think, gee, I should be writing more seriously, and here I am writing fragmented little thoughts. So it's as if you have ADD, you write, I forgot to call my sister back, I didn't like how Fred talked to me, the car has a funny knock in it, I didn't buy kitty litter. Everything from the, the petty to the profound and you simply keep your hand moving across the page. And what they do uh, is that they train you to expand. Uh, you'll, you'll be writing along and you'll hear, I wish I could speak Italian, uh, or I wish I could write music. Uh, and you'll think, I can't do that. And then you'll write along and then it'll come up again. Uh, and you'll think, oh, Maybe I could try that. And then they come up again, and by now you're sick of them. Uh, And and you say, oh, for Christ's sake, all right, I'll give it a shot. Uh, And so they've trained you to expand. They make you larger than your current size. Um, I sometimes call the pages the bridge. Uh, And again, this is something that Liz could talk more about. Uh, that when people are ready to change sizes, to go from being little me to being big me, that's when they encounter the bridge. I wonder if Liz wanted to sort of pick up on that, you know, do you understand the relevance of that? I do, and, and it's so surprising what ends up being the bridge. There's an adage I love that the same mind that created the problem cannot solve the problem. Right, so this this evolution of spirit that I think Julia is talking about, where you have to change, it's a very tricky sort of spiritual 
mystical thing because you have to draw this information out of a mind that is incapable of change. That's why you're stuck. (laughs) So when you're at your very most stuck, you've got to find that bridge somehow. And I think that why the morning pages are so brilliant is precisely because they are sort of unconscious. I've heard you say, Julia, that, that if you, you know, part of the morning pages is you grab that journal right when you wake up and, you know, you haven't had time yet to become yourself. You know, I think you, you said once in an interview, Julia, that it, it takes you 45 minutes to become who you are when you wake up in the morning. So you're trying to catch that moment before you've solidified and cemented. And the gatekeeper is not awake yet, right? The gatekeeper is not awake yet. And so everything can kind of slip in. And, and for me, it really was Italian that was the bridge. Um, I, I could have never known that. I just had to trust that something was telling me that I wanted to do that. And it ended up being the bridge because... I had no memories or words in English that were not associated with depression. But Italian was a whole new language around which there was no depression, no memories and no sorrow. So it it literally was a bridge to a new part of my mind. And I could not have possibly known that if I hadn't done those morning pages week after week after week and just seen that little piece of information slipping in from the fairies (laughs) and letting, letting you know what the next clue was on your journey. You talk about fairies and you said spirituality a few times, you both have. And I know that in the book, um, Julia, you say artists through the centuries have spoken of inspiration, confiding that God spoke to them or angels did. And these days, that's seldom mentioned. Spirituality is obviously central to all of this, not necessarily a, a God that everyone can get, you know, put their own God in there. And that hasn't seemed to put people off and do you think that's because you've said, be open-minded, substitute God for direction or flow? Yes, I think right at the very beginning of the book, I say, okay, we're going to talk about G-O-D, uh, and I want you to be careful to not let semantics be a block for you. If you are an atheist and you do the tools, you will still have a spiritual awakening, although you may not call it a spiritual awakening. Uh, And I recently had a man say to me, Julia, I've been doing morning pages for 22 years. I'm an atheist. And I said, oh, I'm a believer. (laughs) And we sort of stared at each other. Uh, And he said, I've written 13 movies. And I said to him, well, you don't believe in God, but clearly God believes in you. and so I, I think calling it flow, the muse, the universe, the higher power, uh, whatever you care to call it, it doesn't really seem to care what you name it, provided you realize uh, that when you do morning pages, you contact a larger benevolent something that is friendly to you and your goals. Uh, and for a lot of us, this is a breakthrough. Uh, We have had a God concept that was very negative and authoritarian, uh, and we thought God didn't want us to get too uppity. (laughs) Uh, And here, all of a sudden, we say, oh, actually, God is on your side. So um, that's my scoop. (laughs) Your scoop, wonderful. Liz, that scoop, what does it look like for you? I know, you know, Big Magic is very much about that unnamed thing but perhaps you could tell us what that sort of spirituality feels like for you and and I know you wouldn't be able to define it because as as Julia says it's not about semantics. 
right? If I, if I knew what God was, it wouldn't be God. <laughs> uh, it's not, but I, um, I like personally to work with the difference in definition. Um, whenever I talk about God, and I know that British people especially start to get hives and anxiety, so I always, <laughs> I always want to say, look, don't panic. Like, don't panic. The God that you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. So whatever it is that was put into your head that you thought this is insane and ridiculous and brutal, I agree. And, and I think what we're talking about here is the difference between religion and spirituality. And my favorite definition to help us kind of clear the way on that is that religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. And spirituality is for people who have already been there and <laughs> needed to get out. And what got them out was reaching for something higher reaching for something more eternal, more expansive, more loving, more connective. So even higher mind is a lovely way to put it. I often have deep, passionate, beautiful conversations on the page between me and this thing, this source. And sometimes I say to it, am I just imagining you? And it says, it doesn't matter. If you're just imagining me, then thank you, imagination, for providing me with this beautiful conversation that we're engaged in. You know, part of the human dilemma is this this constant need to empirically know why. And, and that's something that the more I let go of that, the more I can be in the flow and just take instructions and, and uh, mind my own business and do what I'm told. <laughs> I, I think that what comes across from this is this hugely important thing all the way through the artist's way and the journey is about being playful and treating your creativity like an inner child. And Julia, you write all the way through, let yourself play Creativity is not sensible. It's never been sensible. Why should it be? Why should you be? I love this fact. You know, the, the artist, you have to nurture it like an inner child. And Julia, perhaps you could tell us first off about that, why that's so important, that child. And then Liz, I'd love to know how that's uh, you know, affected, which I think it has. You've sort of embodied that going forward and all your journeys and adventures and experiences that you've chosen to kind of lap up. So I think I want to say that Serious art is born from serious play. Uh, and then when I go out to teach, I, if I say, I have a tool, it's a nightmare. You'll have to wake up 45 minutes early. You'll have to be vulnerable. Uh, you'll have to really work at getting the three pages done. They say, oh, work, we get it. We're ready to work on our creativity. <laughs> and then if I say, well, I'd like you to do something else. Once a week, I'd like you to take yourself on a solo, festive, enchanting expedition to do something that intrigues or interests you. In other words, I want you to play. And people are immediately offended, arms get crossed, uh, and they, they say, play? I don't see what play has to do with creativity. And I try to explain to them that when we make a piece of art, any kind of art, we're drawing on an inner well, which is filled with images. Uh, and if we are working flat out, we're fishing from the well, and sometimes we overfish the well. And when we reach for an image, there's nothing to catch. So when we go out on an artist's date once a week, what we're doing is we're replenishing our creative well. Uh, and my favorite artist date is a pet store in Evanston, Illinois, where they have a bunny named George. Uh, and you're allowed to pet George. 
And there's something wonderful about just petting this tiny little creature. And uh, it gives you a sense of frivolity. Uh, and frivolity is where you get your best ideas. Liz, I would, I would love to hear your response to that. I mean, first of all, do you still do your artist dates and make kind of play dates with yourself? What does that look like for you? I do, and, and I call them artist dates. I know exactly what it is that I'm doing. I will always call them artist dates. Trademark, Julia Cameron. Um, <laughs> you know, I have, a, um, I have a friend, a very wise teacher and friend, who always says to me, do something different until something better comes along. And for me, an artist date is doing something different. What I feel like where I can get trapped and where many people can get trapped is in something that we call, um, well, that I call commuter mind. And commuter mind is born of true despair. And in my world, the definition of despair is the belief that tomorrow is going to be exactly the same as today. Now, there's no no sign ever in nature that tomorrow is going to be exactly the same as today. It's just nothing in nature is the same tomorrow as it is today. But we fall into that belief and then we get frozen. And it's the same commute every morning. It's the same breakfast sandwich every morning. It's the same office meeting every morning. It's the same parking spot every morning. And you get, it's, it's a fault. It's very unnatural because that's not actually how nature flows. But it's this sort of industrial human construct that we've placed around time and around nature. So for me, I think the artist state is a very rebellious disruption of commuter mind. And I also like to not plan it too much because I know that my ego will co-opt it and turn it into something, try to, try to turn it into some multitasking thing. And so, I mean, I had one the other day um, in the spring, one of the first warm days of spring during COVID where I, I woke up very early and I have a very serious meditation practice that takes up a couple hours in creativity practice. All my practices take up a few hours every morning and they're good, but they're rigid. I can make anything into rigidity. And I just woke up one morning and I thought, it's time for an artist date. I'm going to the ocean. And I jumped in the car and started driving with no sense of which ocean, where, <laughs> which beach. Um, and I kept saying as I was driving, I wonder where I'm going and I wonder why I'm doing this. But that was just my mind demanding again to know why, 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 why. And my creativity was saying, I don't know. We'll see when we get there. Let's go find out. Um, and, you know, took an exit for a sign that said beaches an hour from my house and um, spent the entire day at the beach wandering around for no reason other than to disrupt the software pattern that says, you know, if we're not careful, we just run into the world of we're just here to pay bills and die. And I, I simply do not believe that we're just here to pay bills and die. <laughs> and you've got to actively disrupt that because you're also living in a culture, if you live in Western civilization, that teaches you that you're just here to pay bills and die. And that is, that is also unnatural and untrue. Can I ask, I think probably what comes to lots of people's minds when you hear you talking about adventures and dates is now the world is a different place. It has been for quite a few months. And some people say that isolation is a sort of an artist friend and, you know, that you go on to, in confinement, you make your best work. But Julia, I know you, you talk about this as being art and creativity as being a collective experience. It's tribal. And much of it is, as you've just been saying, about going out and experiencing and filling up your well. So I just wonder from, from both of you, from Julia, how this translates to now and to the time we're going through. And then, you know, Liz, I'm wondering how this has affected your creativity personally the last few months. Well, I want to say that COVID has been good for creativity for me. I have 
finished, uh, written a play, uh, and I have finished, uh, I'm on page 190 of a handwritten book. Uh, and what I found was artist dates were supposed to be outside the house, and now suddenly we're saying, oh, don't go out. So what can you do in your house that's fun? Uh, and it turns out that there's all sorts of things you can do. You can take a bubble bath. You can make a pot of homemade soup. You can bake a pie. You can listen to a piece of music that you never listened to. Uh, you can put on some drum music and dance for five minutes. So COVID is actually a, a, a challenge to find things in your personal environment that are festive. Uh, and I think what happens is that we suddenly start realizing, oh, I, I'm having commuter mind in my own house. I need to shake it up. Uh, and we, we do shake it up. Uh, and I want to say that when I first started doing morning pages, I was told I needed to believe in something. Uh, and I said, you don't understand. 16 years of Catholic education, greased slide to agnosticism. <laughs> and they said, well, you must believe in something. And I thought about it. And I thought, I believe in a line from Dylan Thomas, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, that creative energy. And particularly during this COVID lockdown period, we need to tap into that creative energy and sort of let it flow through us. Liz, how, how have you found that the last you know, few months have affected your creativity, whether for good or bad, or, or whether you have tips for sort of dealing with it, with the, with the new age? Well, there's one piece of it that I found kind of funny, and I say this I'm lo with loving teasing, but for years and years and years and years, as I have traveled around, I've heard people say so much that they wish they could do what I did, which is stop the world and go on a spiritual journey and that they wish they could go to an ashram in India and meditate all day. And I'm like, well, <laughs> what the world looks like right now, my friends, is not that different from what it's like to go to India to an ashram and meditate all day. You essentially sit in a room with nothing happening and just sit in it. Like that's what I did in India for four and a half months in that ashram was to get up before dawn every day and hours and hours and hours a day of doing absolutely nothing. And the emotions that I see stirred up in people during the COVID lockdown are exactly the same as what I went through in those first months of meditation. Rage, boredom, anger, frustration, desire, dreaming of food, dreaming of sex, dreaming of like anything to get out of here, you know? And so I, I kind of watch it and I smile because I think I know where you guys are at. In the beginning of my lockdown and my meditative practice, I also experienced that stay with it. There's something in us. Um, I want to live my life in harmony with what nature is creating. And what nature seems to be suggesting to us right now is stop. So instead of me giving people suggestions about how to push against that, 
and how to fill up your day with activity and how to find ways to consume even though all the stores are closed and how to find ways to socialize even though you can't see people. You know, I see this resistance as very human that's going exactly against what every single apparent signal in the universe is saying right now, in the natural world, is saying, hey, you guys, stop. <laughs> stop. That's enough now. Go to your room and think about what you've done. <laughs> and, um, you know, I hear a lot of people saying that... that COVID is so hard because humans are a social animal. And that's true. We, we undoubtedly are, but that's not the only thing we are. We're also a spiritual animal. And every spiritual tradition in the entire history of the world suggests that at some point in your life, it would be to your benefit to stop and to get very still. So for me, what my creativity has looked like over the last um, six months has not been about making work. I actually had just finished a book in January. So I was kind of like, my well was empty as, as Julia would say, but has been about deepening my meditation, deepening my silence, deepening my solitude, deepening my isolation, playing with that, playing with the reality of the world that's saying you can't do anything else right now. And I can either fight that and get very sick and stressed and ill and, and self-pitying, or I can be a really a, a human who dances with fate and I can say, okay, cool, I guess this is my, I'm doing my meditation retreat. <laughs> Um, so for me, it's just been deepening spiritual practices, and it's been wonderful. And I've 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 never in my life spent as much time alone as I've spent in the last six months, and it's been deeply healing and 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 really nourishing. I feel very full and fed just with my own company at the moment. And I mean that, Julia. I'm sure this reminds me of the part in your book where you you say you advocate reading deprivation, and I mean. I read that going, okay, so you, you call reading and books can be a bit of a pollutant because they're filling your head full of thoughts. Now we live in a world where, oof, that's the last of our books are the last of our problems. We have a certain thing that looks like that <laughs> that just fills our thoughts every day. And I'm wondering how, you know, how important it is just to switch all of that off and how we can do that now. You know, with, with phones, we're bombarded now by what you would call pollutants. And as I say, books feel like a... A, a peaceful luxury in comparison. I think what we're going through right now is a situation where it's been switched off for us. <laughs> we haven't had uh, much of a vote. Uh, and uh, I know I was in the first part of the lockdown, I found myself doing nothing and thinking, oh, this is novel. And then I thought, well, Julia, you're supposed to be the queen of creativity. <laughs> Surely you should be doing something. So I called a girlfriend of mine, a famous singer named Judy Collins. Uh, and I called up Judy and said, what are you doing? And Judy said, oh, I'm writing a coffee table book. I'm writing a longer book. I'm putting together songs. I'm practicing the piano. I'm painting. And I was exhausted just listening to her. Uh, and I found myself thinking, well, she should be who they're calling the queen of creativity. And so we went on for a little while longer. Uh, and I was writing guidance, uh, which it sounds like uh, is something that Liz does too, where you write LJ for little Julie, can I have guidance about X? Uh, and I wrote, can I have guidance about X? Uh, and I heard 
you're ready to start a new project. Start with birds. <laughs> and I thought, birds? <laughs> but I took out a journal, numbered the page number one, uh, and thought about birds and said, aren't they lovely? Uh, and that was the first line of a play. And it gave me something happy uh, to do in my isolation. So every day I would say, I don't know what the scene's supposed to be. I'm panicking. I don't know what comes next. And the guidance would be, sweetheart, you don't need to know what comes next. <laughs> that brings me so nicely to one of the parts that is so important. And I was lucky enough to talk to you, Liz, I think a year ago, two years ago. And one of the things that you said about, we, we talked about perfectionism, which both Julia and, and Liz, you both write very persuasively, perfectionism is not a good thing. Julia, you say, it's not a quest for the best. It is a pursuit for the very worst in ourselves. Oh. It tells us nothing we do will ever be good enough. And Liz, you said when we spoke that I think perfectionism was fear dressed up in a mink coat and heels. <laughs> um, so Liz, we'll start with you and I'll, I'd love to come back to you, Julia, but why is perfectionism such a, an enemy of creativity really? Well, it tends to kill things before they even begin. And the way, the reason it's so insidious is that it, it disguises itself as an attribute. So if you're on a, on a job interview, for instance, and they ask you, what are your worst qualities? We all know that the answer that you're supposed to give is that you're a perfectionist. If anything, I care too much, you know, because what you're signaling to your prospective boss is, is what a hard worker you are and how you don't, you won't settle for or anything less than the best, as, as Julia has said. And it's just, it's simply a lie. I think perfectionism has killed more art projects than any dictator uh, or regime or censorship could ever have done. You know, it's the dictator within. It's the tyrant who lives within who tells you that before you've even started, that, it, that it's not going to be good enough. And, and for me, a really big breakthrough was when I was working on my first novel and it wasn't good. And, and Julia, I've heard you say that one of the, the dangers of, of a budding artist is comparing your work as a new artist to the work of masters and just how, how vicious and cruel that comparison can be. And, you know, we have good taste. What's what makes us want to become artists is that we know what good things are. So when we start making them, we can tell that they aren't good. <laughs> and, and that's what stops you. Um, but then how are you ever supposed to become a master? And so when I was working on my first novel, I about halfway through, I just, I really started to lose heart for it because I could see that it was just so sub, it was so sub perfect and so far from what I imagined it to be in my head. But I remember getting very stubborn. And this is the thing about art is that there's a stubbornness to it that, that pushes back against perfectionism. And, and I got very stubborn one day and I stood up from my desk and I said aloud to the universe itself, to my guides, I said, I never promised you I would be a great writer. I just said I would be a writer. I just said I would be a writer. And I'm not going to go to my death with 50 pages of an unfinished novel in my desk. So if people don't like it, they can write their own. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, And they won't. They mostly won't because it's really hard to do. So this isn't going to be good, but it's going to be done. And that is the stubbornness that I think is, is required to push past the perfectionism. And the expression that my mother taught me that done is better than good has gotten me through more projects than you could possibly imagine. My inner perfectionist, my, my sensor, 
uh, is somebody that I call Nigel. And Nigel is a gay British interior decorator. <laughs> nothing that I do ever will measure up to Nigel's standards. So I, when I write morning pages, Nigel will say, oh, Julia, you're boring. And I've learned to say to Nigel, thank you for sharing. And I think what we're talking about when we're talking about perfectionism is that artists who succeed are people who have learned to move past their perfectionism. Uh, sometimes people come to study with me uh, and they expect to be taught how to be fearless. And I say to them, no, that isn't how it works. What we learn to do is to create despite our fear. And when you do morning pages, you're miniaturizing your Nigels. Uh, and they go from being a big, forbidding, doomsday voice to being a little squeaky cartoon character who's always negative. Liz, do you have a, a Nigel, or, or how do you silence your inner critic? And I don't know if, you, if you've given that critic a name. Perhaps you can now. <laughs> it's hard to compete with Nigel. I mean, I think we can all see him. You know, one of the things is that I've, I've learned that once I discovered that perfectionism really truly is fear in high heels and a mink coat pretending to be fancy, and you take it down to its base root and all it is is fear in disguise. So as soon as I found that out, that was a big piece of information to know that what I was hearing was not a quest for excellence or that what I was hearing was just terror. Um, it was born of terror that I am not enough, that I will never be enough, that nothing I can do will ever be enough. Go back in your hole and die. And I now have made friends with my fear in that I recognize it to be the youngest part of me. It's a real child. And so I speak very lovingly to it. Um, I don't try to kick it out. I don't try to throw it away. I don't try to tell it to go to hell. I see my perfectionism as a baby in disguise, a very frightened baby. And so I, I just talk to it and I let it speak. Um, one of the things I do in my journal is when I feel fear, I let my fear have a voice. So I say, would you like a few minutes to share with the rest of us what you're going through? And then the fear is allowed to say what it's, what it's feeling. And I listen to it with a great deal of respect. You know, I never mock it. I never yell at it. And I just let it speak. I think like all of us, all it wants is its voice to be heard. And then once it's spoken, then I say, thank you. I hear that. I understand that. I can completely see why you would feel that way. Would you mind if we let wisdom speak now? And, um, <laughs> and can you take a seat for a minute? And we're going to bring wisdom in. And wisdom, what do you have to say about this? And, and we all have really deep reserves of both. We all have really deep reserves of fear, but we also all have very deep and, and oftentimes surprising reserves of wisdom. And all you have to do is invite her in and ask her to speak. And you'll be, you'll be amazed at the beautiful guidance that you're given. Julia, it seems that the way to counter as well, this idea of perfection is to think of creativity as a, as a process, as you say, as progress, not perfection. So you can't you say get better and look good at the same time you need to be willing to be a bad artist to get better is is that what your emphasis is is on when you're teaching and when you're trying to think of creativity it's it's about progress and process not kind of perfection and a successful product as a goal yes i think i want to teach people i think one of the big secrets we have a a mythology around artists that says that artists are tortured Artists are neurotic, artists are broke, artists are um, 
isolated. Uh, and what we don't say is that it's fun. Uh, and I think this the secret, uh, we, we have a lot of mythology talking about great art is made from great pain. Uh, and I think what we need to remember is that great art can be made from great joy. And I think uh, I was interested in Big Magic. You had the long list of fears, uh, and they were wonderful, and I identified with all of them. Uh, and I think when you do the guided writing, could I have guidance about X? You are asking to access wisdom. Uh, and I think the voice that speaks to you then is kind, calm, tolerant, encouraging. And as we say, what if it's just my imagination? And then we think, well, then my imagination is a wonderful thing. <laughs> Julia, you mentioned this sort of mythologies and, and misconceptions, which I think the whole book is about countering lots of the misconceptions about what artists are. And one of the things is a judgment on artists for trying to make a living you know, out of your art. It's meant to be a hobby. It's meant to be a side hustle. Uh, why do you think we do judge people so much for, for, for that? I mean, people feel perhaps that they can't make their creativity into their life and their work because they have reasons. It's not financially viable or, or as you say in the book, perhaps they're too old. Well, I think the artist's way was a temper tantrum. I had made a movie. Uh, it got a wonderful review in London. It's, they said, this woman is not an old coward, but she is funny. Uh, and I was delighted. Uh, but in America, because the sound had been stolen and the film had to be looped, we couldn't bring the film out in America. Uh, and I found myself saying, well, it was worth it anyway to have spent two years making a feature film just to be able to say, as Liz said before, it's done. By God, <laughs> I did it. And um, I think I had a temper tantrum when I found my film not being received in America. Uh, and I said, there has to be something good about sheer process. So I, I believe in process. I've written many different forms. I've written poetry, musicals, novels, nonfiction, spirituality, prayer books. Uh, and I think that they've all been written out of sort of taking an internal dare of, oh, you don't think you can do this? Well, why don't you try? It's all about risk. It comes back to being playful, willing to take risks. And just, just before I go into um, questions from the audience, which reluctantly I'm going to have to do, and they're, they're mounting up, I can see them. But I, I, one of the things that comes through in, in the ask, and I'm sure, Liz, you will sort of be able to counter this or relate to this, is the idea that choosing creativity as your career, as your life, is, is seen as selfish by yourself and by others, perhaps. And I'm just wondering, you know, whether you have sort of struggled with that, the idea that outside, you know, feel people think that it's selfish of you to devote yourself to your creative pursuits. Julia would say, in fact, 
the selflessness of it is that you then become a bridge again, a different type of bridge. And, you know, others can see what you're doing and they can cross from their self-doubt into self-expression through your example. Well, it's, it's the oldest recognizable human impulse is to make art. It's in fact, in most anthropological circles, where they define when the modern human began. You can tell that some evolution of the mind occurred because now we're making art. And my definition of art is um, making something more beautiful than it needs to be for no reason. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's when you start to see the difference between the example that I like to give is my, my grandparents who were depression era farmers in the 1930s Dust Bowl in Minnesota, Scandinavian immigrants who were dairy farmers in Northern Minnesota. You cannot come up with people less airy fairy than that. You know, like no nonsense. They don't even like color. They don't even like spices. I mean, these are, these are hardened Swedes fighting for their lives on the prairies. The last people in the world who would have considered themselves to be artists. My grandmother made the most beautiful quilts that you could ever imagine. And in one regard, it was a very pragmatic thing for her to do because she had seven children and no money and winters were cold and they needed quilts. And it was a good way to use leftover bits of material because she was frugal. Those quilts did not need to be as beautiful as they were. They did not. There, was, there is no rational or pragmatic explanation for why they were as beautiful as they were, why she put the amount of time into it. It's not like she had a whole bunch of free time <laughs> raising seven kids on a farm. It was a priority for her that she probably would not, would not have even been able to explain. And my grandfather as well made beautiful woodworking. Like they, before the age of mass media, everybody made art. Everybody. It's just what you did with your hands. And, and you did it because it pleased you. And you did it because it settled you. And you did it because it connected you to stillness. And it, you did it because it made your mind pleased to look at it. So if we've lost something, if we've created a world where you can only gauge whether or not something is worth doing by how many units of currency it produces, <laughs> um, because that certainly wasn't why my grandmother was making quilts that to this day her descendants frame and hang on walls as art because they were that beautiful. Julia, just, just my, my last thought on that is we've lost something if people do that, but also it's, it's about people trying to get out of making art their life, making creativity their life would use various reasons, like perhaps they say it's not their economic and financial reality. And I know you have answers to that in, in the book. People can be listening saying, I want to spend my, my whole, all my hours of my day devoting myself to my creativity, but I can't because I can't make enough money that way. Well, I think one of the things we don't talk about is that if you do something you love, you tend to make money. And um, I think when we pursue a craft, when we write nine novels, what we are doing is that we are inviting the universe to give us a pat on the back. Uh, and it does. And I think that there's an optimistic, benevolent world that we have been trained to ignore. And when we start listening to that younger inner scamp of a self, we begin to find, oh, maybe I could make a shekel or two at this. And we do. When I was just beginning to write Big Magic, I put a survey out on Facebook to hundreds of thousands of people. And I said, what is the number one obstacle 
to you living a more creative life? And 95% of the answers were the same, which was, I don't have time. So you didn't burst out laughing. So I'm going to repeat it to see if you can hear the absurdity. I put out a survey on social media asking people what the number one obstacle to them having a more creative life was. And hundreds of thousands of people who were at that moment sitting, staring at their phone on Facebook said, I don't have any free time. So I just want to point out like part of the discipline is getting honest and getting, I would use the word sober about where your time is actually going. And I would very, you know, really challenge this. Um, I mean, I, whenever people write to me and say, I wish I could be more creative and I don't have time, I always want to say, do not make me go and look at your page and see what you've been up to because I will and I will call you out on it. Do not make me go into your phone and check your usage to see how many hours you have spent on Instagram and Facebook this week. I will do it. How, what's your favorite television show? Um, how many hours have you spent watching it? How, where are you actually putting your hours? Um, and I think I don't have enough time is also fear in disguise. And I, I don't believe it. <laughs> I'll, I'll make an exception. If you're um, a working mother during COVID and you have young children at home under the age of five, you're excused. <laughs> <laughs> you just, and, and I think a lot of people going for you. Yeah, and, yeah. I'll send, yeah. I'll send babysitters over to your house right now. Um, <laughs> but no, I think, I think you have to get, I think you just have to get really brutally. And even there, my friend Glennon Doyle, who's got the number one book in America right now, started writing when she was a, as a, a mom with, with three young kids. And she had this realization that all she had to do in order to become a writer was to stop watching TV. And that was such a hard thing for her to give up because TV was the finish line at the end of the hard day. It's essentially like a visual glass of wine. You can sit down and zone out. But if she stopped watching TV and went to bed at the same time her kids went to bed, so her kids went to bed at 8.30, she went to bed at 8.30, she set the alarm for 4.30, got up and wrote for an hour and a half before her children woke up. That's how she started writing. So, I mean, there are examples out there of people who just got very rigorous and very sober and very honest about where their, where their actual time was going. <laughs> so I, I am here to call everybody out on that. And you have to call yourself out on it. You know, um, I, I actually can't go and see how much time you've been spending on social media, but you can. And, and it might be helpful for you to see that. It's horrifying for me when I look at how much time I spend. I, and I do it. I look at it and I'm like, God, oh, there's, there's hours that I'll never have back. I, I agree. Those <laughs> apps. And you can see how long at the end of each day you've been on. And then, I try, then you, I try and punish myself by going off the whole next day. And then it just goes up and down like a yoga. Thank you both so much. I'm going to go to the audience questions. But Julia, I know you're nodding at that because, of course, in the artist's way, it's very much the message that those excuses about time and age and money are all really fear. And, and when you think about it differently you can put them all aside and, and just put a pin in them saying that's fear I can overcome that in, in various ways but there are so many questions going over 50 so I'm sorry if I don't get to it um someone asks I'd love to hear both of your answers on this how do you face that I'm not good enough fear how do you move past it when I'm wrestling with my work the question of what's the point and I'm sure this is relevant to so many people is always present uh, Julia do you want to answer that and then Liz well, this is where I think artist dates come in. I think when we go on an artist date or when we do an artist date within our confines of our own home, what happens is we have an inkling or a hunch uh, that maybe we're enough. And the idea that maybe we're enough is the ammunition that you use to fight with I'm not good enough. 
I published 40 books. That's a lot of books. It's been about a book a year since I was 30. Uh, and what happens uh, is that I find myself, I was teaching a writing workshop a, a, about a month ago, uh, and I realized that I had what I call the imposter syndrome, that there I was, 40 books published, and I was still saying, I don't know if I'm a real writer. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think the answer to am I a real writer is, well, sweetie, did you write today? <laughs> and if you wrote today, maybe you're a real writer. And I, I want to say I have a girlfriend, Jennifer, a wonderful actress, uh, and she says we all have 20 minutes and that if you give 20 minutes to your art form, you will succeed. Liz, do you, do you have anything to add to the, that last question that I read out? About? I just want everybody to really take in what you just heard, which is Julia Cameron saying that she had imposter syndrome for teaching a creativity <laughs> workshop. So if you, so just like next time you have imposter syndrome, I want you to just remember that moment that we were all just privileged to see to, to show us that it's not special to you. It's really not special to you. It's actually just a part of the process that happens to, as we've just seen, quite literally everybody. And the, the thing that I combat it with, or when people say to me, I'm going to go back to the what's the point question. So it's not what you think. That's all I know. The point of whatever you create is not what you think it's going to be. You, you have no way of knowing in advance what, if anything, the point will be. I'm also a big fan of doing things for no point at all. But I think that what I can promise you anybody, uh, and I always say this to, because I mostly speak to people who, who want to be writing, I cannot promise you that, that your book will be good, that, that it will be seen as good. I cannot promise you that you'll find an agent. I mean, we're all adults here, so I, I like to be honest with people. I can't promise you that you'll get published. I can't promise you that if you get published, you'll get reviewed. I can't promise you that if you get reviewed, you'll be purchased. Um, I can't promise you that that any of that will happen, but I can. there's one sacred promise that I can make for you, and that is that you will know so much more about yourself and about life and about the world at the end of that project than you knew at the beginning. Promise. And that to me seems entirely a good enough reason to do something just out of the curiosity. Aren't you curious to see who you'll be on the other side of that? And that alone, I think, is, is reason to, to create absolutely anything that you want. There's another question here that I, I, I love, which says, could you both speak about the courage to be weird and new and different and the willingness to lose some old stuff to honor the new and fresh stream of creativity and guidance. This is a, where I'm a fanatic. I make <laughs> coffee the night before. I put it in the refrigerator. When I get up in the morning, I pad to the kitchen, I open the refrigerator, I pour iced coffee, and I go to the page. And what happens on the page is that I'm led somewhere further. And when I'm led somewhere further, I may balk and uh, dig my heels in and say, oh, I can't do that. But there's this tiny little voice that says, maybe you can. So as you write your morning pages, and then uh, I have another tool that I like, which is take a 20-minute walk and do that a couple times each week. Uh, and that what happens is that you begin to have a new definition of yourself. You're the person who walked. 
Isn't that wonderful? You're the person who took an artist date. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, and when you do these things, which are weird, what happens is you start to have a new definition of yourself as daring. Uh, and I, I think that working with my toolkit brings you to a sense of, oh, I'm actually rather brave, rather weird, rather lovely. I think I'll try them again. <laughs> Liz, do, do you have anything to feed into that sort of that bravery and courage to be weird and new and different and and sort of shed some of the old stuff? How that feels and, and how you do that? Well, I'm just coming to you as a 51 year old woman whose life does not look even remotely like what I had planned when I was a 21 year old woman. I really had a pretty narrow view at that point and what a woman's life should be and what a woman's life should look like. I am twice divorced. So obviously things didn't go as planned. I consider myself to be a widow because the love of my life, my partner Rhea passed away two years ago. So I'm a twice divorced bisexual widow with no children. <laughs> Living by herself in a tiny, weird old church in a very rednecky part of New Jersey. Not at all what the plan was. So much better than what the plan was. So, so, so much better. And I have become everything that society teaches girls. If you're not careful, you might end up being this dreadful, terrible thing, a middle-aged woman living alone. And I have become that. And I quite literally live in a state of glee. <laughs> Do you know what? It's so wonderful. I sent a quote from your book to you. It's not actually your, you, it's Robert Louis Stevenson. I sent it to my family today. It says, to know what you prefer instead of humbly saying amen to what the world tells you you ought to prefer is to have kept your soul alive. And I sent that to my family today and said, please put this on my gravestone. So I think that sounds like a very good uh, a good ending. Thank you so much, Liz. And I'm really sorry to have gone through the time um, so quickly because there's just so much more to hear from you both. It's been truly such a pleasure. And someone says, oh no, my laptop quit when Liz was talking about spirituality. Don't worry, we'll send a link to everyone who's watching, um, I think in the morning so that you can you can watch it back again for anything you missed. And as I say, there is so much more we could cover, but Thank you both very, very much indeed for joining us. It's a great honor to have you both. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Hannah. And thank you, Julia. Hannah, it's always a delight to see you. And Julia, you are everything I ever dreamed. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me. It's a real honor. This week's podcast starred Julia Cameron and Elizabeth Gilbert and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me and edited by John Doughty. At How To Academy, we love pairing up amazing guest speakers for live streams and do it just as much as we can. Right now, if you visit our website, you can still find tickets on sale for Ralph Steadman meeting Will Self and Anthony Gormley meeting Carlo Rivelli. And of course, while you're there, you'll find a podcast archive with plenty more iconic artists and thinkers, from Gloria Steinem to Lisa Tadeo to Tandy Newton. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.